Hebrews and Philippians, and we're looking at chapter 3 and verses starting at verse 7. So if you have your Bibles, please join with me, or it's on the screen behind me. So we begin at verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through the faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from the God from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, become like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me, pardon me, heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is the word of God. great to be back, back with God's people who I love and uh, just have a great burden for. Wonderful to be here again with you this morning. In Philippians, we encounter a man who has been completely overtaken by the gospel. It's hard to read Philippians and not feel the intensity and the passion of the Apostle Paul's faith just oozing through the pages of Scripture, is it not? Proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ was Paul's life work. The gospel had radically touched every inch of his life and significantly changed his focus and his priorities. He had signed up to an unending season pass of supporting, cheering, sharing and promoting the gospel of Christ. And nothing, nothing would deter him from this, not even chains. In fact, unsurprisingly, in Paul's case, when he is in chains, the gospel is furthered and advanced. No circumstance could prevent Paul from preaching the gospel of Christ. As he writes, or more correctly dictates, his letter to the Philippians, a church he has a great personal and pastoral concern for and affection for, Paul is awaiting trial in prison. He had been arrested for preaching that all a person had to do in order to be saved was to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It did not matter whether a person were a Jew by birth, had become a Jew in order to become a Christian, or had never been a Jew at all. None of this mattered to Paul anymore. 
There were many people for whom this kind of proclamation was the most scandalous thing imaginable, many of whom were Paul's own people, the Jews, Jewish Christians even, who held to the belief that in order to be saved, faith in Christ was not enough. A person had to continue to follow the many rules and regulations of the Jewish law in order to be a real Christian. These people were called Judaizers or legalists. And their teachings, Paul believed, were not based on grace, but based on works and on things to do with this world. In verses 19 to 21 of chapter 3, Paul states, Their mind is on earthly things, for our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. In other words, Paul is reminding the church in Philippi and today the church in Erina that Christ alone is the one in whom we are to put our hope. We are not to put our hope in anything we try and do to gain a righteousness on our own. Because no matter what we do or no matter how hard we try, it will simply never be enough. As Paul himself knew so well, no matter how hard one tries to keep the law perfectly, you always come up short. The law reveals the inadequacy and the imperfection of our hearts. So in order to be saved, we must rely on Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. This was a hard message to understand. For Paul's audience, even for some today, it simply sounds too simple. (laughs) There must be something we can add. Paul was speaking into a context where the Judaizers or Jewish Christians were telling folks who were not Jewish by birth, that they had to be circumcised before, had to be circumcised, sorry, in order to become Jews before they could become Christians. Rubbish, says Paul. In verse 2, he warns about these very people. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Now, dogs in the ancient world were mostly wild and venomous, not the tame placid house pets that we come to think of or associate with today. And this is very harsh language that he is using. And it indicates the seriousness of the danger in which he's warning about this false message. Paul goes on to say that true circumcision is not an external act, but it's about a person's heart. It's about what happens internally when somebody receives Christ. Paul's confidence had been in his own spiritual standing before he encountered Jesus on the Damascus road. And before this, he was so zealous in his religiosity that he was persecuting Christians. And so he knows firsthand that good intended religion can in fact do great harm. And so he is at pain's length to make sure that these new Christians do not try and add Jewish law and ritual to their faith and to their salvation. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, 
you've heard one of those testimonies where the speaker will get up and tell you about how bad their life was. All the things that they were involved in that were ungodly before they encountered Christ. And then they met Christ and they became transformed. And they went from bad to being good. Well, Paul has a reverse testimony. He wants to tell you how good he was. He wants to tell you of all the great things that he did and his inheritance and his birthright and so forth. If anyone was, you could not get more Jewish than Paul. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. This meant Paul was a real Jew by birth, not a converted Jew. He was circumcised when he was only eight days old. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But no matter how great that made Paul look in the eyes of the world, and it did make him look awfully good. It could not save him. Paul's confidence for salvation had been in himself, in his flesh, not in Christ. But he now considers that all garbage compared to knowing Christ and being found in him. To be found in Christ is to be found to be in a place where all of your hope is found in Jesus, and it rests confidently on his finished work on the cross and in his resurrection. To be found in Christ is to place zero uh, hope or expectation in your own personal merit. From an earthly perspective, Paul had the best religious credentials one could have. He could have been one sitting in one of the great places in the synagogues. He could have been a person held in very high esteem in the marketplace. Uh, in his day and in his context, he could have been a person of great fame and great wealth had he chosen to continue down the road in which he was leading. But he says, from a Roman prison cell, none of that stuff matters. It means nothing compared to my faith in Christ. I, may, I might be in chains right now, but that doesn't matter because Christ dwells within me. Paul placed his hope in Christ, leaving behind the past and focusing on the future. Now, there's a lot about this passage and the context of Philippians that is so foreign to us. We've come to faith in a Gentile context where there is no expectation for circumcision or all of these rituals and regulations. And religion is not mixed up with the law and the marketplace as much as it used to be in Paul's day. So I recognise that as we look at this passage this morning, there, sometimes it's really difficult for us to bring the 21st century back into the 1st century Judaism. But I still think there's areas in our lives where we can add to our faith. We might look at somebody else and think, well, they're not a very mature Christian. They haven't done X, Y, or Z. 
Or we might think, I've done X, Y, and Z. I'm a really mature Christian. So what are some of the things that we can add to our faith? Well, perhaps how long we've been a believer for. Perhaps the number of people we've led to Christ. The various ministries we've served in. The leadership roles we have previously or currently occupy in the church. Perhaps a theological degree or training. My friends, I think it's fair to say that we do wear some of these things as badges on our sleeve, don't we? And Paul says it's, it's, it's rubbish compared to knowing Christ and being found in Him. Now, it's not to say that these things are not good, but the warning here is to make sure that we understand that it's all about being found in Christ for our salvation. And that, in fact, sometimes these badges can create roadblocks for people coming to know Christ. Some people might look at us in our so-called perfection, in our so-called goodness, and think, I can never be like you, and therefore I can't be a Christian. Can you see how so much of our so-called goodness can in fact become a barrier for people? And yet what we see Paul, this incredible, passionate person for the Lord, is he continually reminds the Philippians of how much of a sinner he is. He He's very realistic about how inadequate he is before the Lord. And all of his hope is, is in Christ. It's not in himself. It's not in his goodness. Because he recognizes that apart from Christ, he has none. Paul had been a religious fanatic, earnestly building a religious resume that he thought would impress God. But all that changed when he came face to face with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus was a person who could be known. And he had plans for Paul's life and Paul's ministry. Paul soon realized that the grace and forgiveness of Christ is what would save him, not his moral performance. I think for a long time, and I know in my own experience of growing up in the church, Christianity's been a lot about what not to do. It's about being a good person, trying to live a moral life. Have you found yourself making that the kind of end goal? If I can sin less, if I can be a better person, then I'll be a better representation of Christ. Paul have none of that. It's actually not about doing more and being better it's actually about being more submitted and more obedient. And they're two very different things, but I think we very easily get them mixed up. Paul wants to demonstrate to the Philippians that if he could reject his past achievements when he submitted to the gospel, then the Philippians likewise can reject this false message, this false doctrine that they are being taught and having the opportunity to compromise in their faith in order to be saved. Paul understood and wanted this church that he had a pastoral burden for to understand that Christianity is all about relationship, not religion. And we've heard that phrase many times before, haven't we? That's the big shift that took place for Paul 
you know, he was very religious. And all of his hope and his trust was in religion because he could control that. But a relationship's very different. Paul speaks about knowing Christ. We speak about knowing Christ in our mission statement. What does it mean to truly know Christ? As one who had so much going for him from a religious, worldly perspective, writing from prison, Paul is able to say, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. What does it mean to truly know Christ? Well, firstly, and you've heard this again before, but there is a significant difference between knowing about someone and actually knowing them personally. It is entirely possible to read, study, and learn a great deal about Jesus and be an expert in all that he said and did without actually knowing him. I love to read biographies, and I have two bookshelf rows full of them. I've learned a lot about Steve Waugh, Nelson Mandela, John Howard, Sting, Peter Cosgrove, and Richard Glover. But I don't know any of them personally. And if I tried to convince any of them that I knew them, they would laugh at me. They don't know me from a bar of soap. There's a big difference between knowing about someone and actually knowing and being known by them. Knowing Christ is often understood as having a personal relationship with the Lord, about engaging in a daily walk with Him, where you experience His presence and His peace and His power in your life. Is that your understanding of what it is to know Christ? Well, that's true. To know Christ is to pray to Him and to walk with Him and to live in the power of His Spirit day by day life. But there is a danger when we make knowing Christ simply about that relational aspect. The biblical understanding of what it is to know God is to know His will and to do His will. That's what it means to know God. With this view, in, with this understanding in view, obedience to the Lord's will then is the true measure of how well a person knows the Lord. It's not about how much you know about, it's about how obedient you are to. To know the Lord is to live in faithfulness to His Word day by day. So you're not just someone who reads the Word, but you're actually someone who lives the Word. At times, obedience can be a joy as we live in the wisdom of God's goodness and grace. God's plans for our lives are good plans. And when we seek to live our lives in accordance to God's plans, that can be a joy and a delight. But there are also times when being obedient to God's will 
is incredibly hard and incredibly costly. Paul will speak about wanting to join Christ in his suffering, even to death. Many of the disciples were martyred for their faith. Many Christians down through the ages, being obedient to God's will has cost them their lives. Now, for you and I, that's not a reality we face today. But when it comes to obedience to God's will, I want to ask, where is the cost factor for us? Where does it cost to really know Christ. If there is no cost in knowing Christ, how obedient are we being to his will? Christians in China right now so know something about risk and cost when it comes to knowing Jesus. And I just wonder, where is that risk or that cost for us? when it comes to knowing Christ? Could it be that we're not placing ourselves in any scenarios or situations where our faith is either challenged or put to the test? Could it be that we are too afraid to share about Jesus? And therefore, again, we're just eliminating risk and eliminating cost and dwelling in safety Knowing Christ, experiencing meaningful relationship with Him, walking with Him, understanding His will and seeking to live obediently to that will became the singular focus for Paul's life. He had one single-minded goal. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. I want to know Christ. I want to walk with Christ. I want to talk with Him. I want to listen to Him. I want to hear His Word. I want to obey Him. Is this our single-minded goal as well? Does Christ have all of us or just part of us? Has it been your experience that the longer you've been a Christian, the more complacent you become in your faith? Uh, Do you find yourself living more and more in past Christian experiences, thinking back to those good old days when your passion for the Lord was fresh and your desire to serve Him was red hot? Do you find yourself when you're in a group and have the opportunity to share, telling stories from years gone by. But where are the present day stories? It's probably no different to a marriage relationship. After many years together, there is no question of your commitment to your spouse, but it is easy to fall into the trap of complacency, taking each other for granted, And after a while, your relationship becomes very predictable, very safe, and at times, very dry. Do you feel dry in your walk with the Lord? Has faith become more head than heart orientated? Something that you know a lot about, 
but you're not experiencing a lot of. On our way up to Brisbane, we drove past Wet n Wild. And, uh, and, and this took me back to a place. When Bronnie and I were on our honeymoon, we went to Wet n Wild. And, uh, and I actually spent a lot of our holiday thinking about the past, thinking about those early days, thinking about how wonderful it was. I have to be careful here. <laughs> uh, when there was less responsibility in our lives. Uh, when we just had time together freely and easily. When having an adult conversation uninterrupted was, uh, was really easy to do and we had more energy. You know, and I found myself kind of just longing to go back to that place. Now, what happens when we dwell in that place? What does that do to the present? It can actually make us really unsatisfied with the present. And so I had to catch myself and say, well, Joel, what are you doing now and what are you doing in the future to cultivate a great dynamic, loving, romantic marriage. Because the past is in the past. And the same is true with our walk with Christ. Many of us have become so reliant and so complacent on our past years. Maybe the past years of good ministry work that we did. But again, in that situation, we're tying up our hope in what we did. You see, if our relationship with Christ is always about Uh, being submitted to his will and it's about truly knowing him then it shouldn't matter what happened in the past because it's all about what happens today it's about what happens now Paul refuses to rely on past experiences looking back certainly has a place in helping us plan for the future but we're not to dwell there In terms of growth and maturity, it's all about the future. It's all about today. So let me ask, what does the future hold for you and Jesus? What does the future hold for you and Jesus? What is your plan for spiritual growth and maturity? Do you have one? Do you even have a conviction that you need to continue growing. (laughs) I wonder how we might seek to cultivate new and fresh ways to reconnect and rekindle a renewed sense of passion and enthusiasm for the Lord. And as I look around this room, I recognize that there is so much wisdom and experience to share. Some of you more mature Christians, you have so much to share with us about what you've done during those dry times and those dry seasons in your walk with Christ. What have you done to rekindle that passion, that fire in your heart? We want to hear those stories. Help us. On the top of my head, here are just a few basic suggestions as to how we might seek to rekindle that passion for Christ how we might become more future-orientated 
rather than past-orientated. Perhaps reading the scriptures has become a fairly dry and bland experience, maybe even a non-existent experience for you. Perhaps you could try a new version of the scriptures. You might find the words coming to you in a fresh and a new way. Maybe you could try going to a different place to pray. Maybe you've been praying in the same place. You could actually carve out some time or go to a different place. Sometimes just a change of physical environment can actually make a big difference. What about silence? Do you actually make time for silence? Now, at my stage of life, that's really hard. But for many of you in this room, there's lots of opportunities. Maybe you have too much silence, I don't know. But there's a big difference between uh, random silence and intentional silence. And when I talk about silence, I'm talking about listening and just creating a space and a posture where you're open to listen. Does that make sense? We live in a very noisy world, don't we? There is just noise all over the shop. There's even noise that comes from uh, objects that can't speak. So what about your environment? Maybe it's very cluttered. It's difficult to listen and hear because you're just surrounded by so many things that make you think all the time. So perhaps creating some silence what about walking? Uh, I know a number of you do this, and I've found it myself. There's something wonderful about walking and praying, just walking in God's creation and just allowing the Holy Spirit to lead and to guide your thoughts as you, as you walk. There's something about that. Uh, maybe you need to stop thinking so much about yourself and start thinking more about others and what their needs are. So at the moment, you might be feeling really discouraged about your faith. I'm a terrible Christian. I don't do enough. I don't give enough, whatever it might be. Perhaps it's an opportunity and a moment for you to just start focusing on others. Don't worry about what you think about yourself. What actually matters is what God thinks about you, and you're good in God's books if your faith and trust is in Him. So start thinking more about others. Very easy to become consumed with our own needs and our own situation. I hear it and I see it a lot in my own life and in the lives of others. Be a blessing to someone. Encourage someone. Start focusing on other people. We get to a little bit more of the pointy end now. What about obedience? Are you fulfilling God's call upon your life? Now, I think there's a general sense of call that all Christians heed, and then there might also be times when God places a very particular and specific call upon your life. And at times that can come at a great cost, at a great inconvenience, at great risk, and we have a choice if we're going to engage in that or not. Some of us choose to disconnect Maybe you're standing at a threshold at the moment. There's something that you know God is calling you into or has been calling you to do for some time or to let go of. You've been avoiding it. So what about obedience? Where does that figure in your discipleship? Speaking of discipleship and obedience, 
How are you going about, how am I going about being a disciple who makes disciples? Terry shared something with me this week. It was very powerful. He said, Jesus didn't make disciples to be disciples. He made disciples to make disciples. <laughs> now, that's a big difference. I was very convicted by that because when I think of discipleship, I think of reading the Bible more and praying more and giving more financially and serving more in the church. And yet, <laughs> that's all about just being more of a disciple when, in fact, Jesus wants disciples who make disciples. We're getting to the more pointy edge, aren't we? What it means to know Christ. What about that verse that says, take up your cross daily and follow me? Like, where's my cross? Where's your cross that you're taking up daily? In verses 12 to 13, Paul writes, Not that I have already obtained all of this or have arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. Paul was passionate for the Lord and had a red-hot desire to share the gospel. He was planting churches, seeing conversions take place, writing scriptures, and yet he still felt as though he had a long way to go. See, Christ had taken hold of him on that road to Damascus, but Paul had not yet fully taken hold of Christ. I find that really helpful language. If you believe in Jesus, he's taken a grip of you. He's got a firm hold of you. But how are you going and how am I going taking a firm grip of him? It takes a lifetime of discipleship, doesn't it? As believers in Christ, none of us have fully yet taken hold. None of us have fully arrived at our potential in Christ. So may we forget what is behind and strain to what is ahead. I want to mention at this point that this straining ahead is not to be confused with effort towards salvation or earning merit from God. It's about the fact that Christ has taken a hold of us and we desire to reorientate our lives to become increasingly aligned with his will and to be obedient to his ways. It's not about becoming better. It's about becoming more submitted. We have been called heavenward. We are no longer citizens of this world. I wonder what you and I need to let go of or forget or throw in the garbage bin in order to focus more on Christ and less on the world. I, I think this requires some serious, disciplined reflection from each of us, doesn't it? Paul draws on the image of a runner striving to win the prize. And he presses on with his eye firmly fixed on that goal. Paul wasn't running to secure his salvation. He knew that Christ had done that for him. Paul ran for the, for the sheer joy of knowing Jesus.
Paul ran for the sheer joy of knowing Christ even more completely than what he currently did. But one thing I do, Paul writes, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, let this be our single-minded goal as well. As we worship together, as we fellowship together, as we serve together, as we study the Scriptures together, as we seek to carry one another's burdens and lift one another up as a community of faith, as we seek to fulfill our heavenly calling here at Erina, may we share this same passion that Paul had to both know Christ and make Him known. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning with humble hearts. Recognizing, Lord, that it is so easy for us as flawed, sinful human beings to get caught up in ourselves, to get caught up in the past. We know, Lord, how easy it is for us to avoid obedience, to avoid things that cause us discomfort and risk and challenge. And yet, your Holy Spirit and the scripture that we read this morning really challenges that within us, both as individuals and also as a church. It's very easy for us as a church, Lord, to become very safe and complacent. Father, I just pray that by your Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that dwelt in Paul's heart and spurred him on, might too spur us on to greater maturity and greater obedience. May we be a people who not only know about you, but may we be a people who know you who are known by you and who seek to share you with others. We can't do this in our own strength, Lord. And so we just pray for an ongoing filling of your Holy Spirit to empower and equip and release us. For your kingdom's sake we pray. Amen. Have you decided to follow Jesus?